So we've been thinking about covenant and the covenantal language. And here again in Genesis chapter 17, we will see it in more detail. So Genesis 17, beginning to read from verse 1. This is God's word to us. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, as for me, and said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. And I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. And kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you. And your descendants after you for the generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. In the whole land of Canaan, where you are now an alien, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. I will be their God. Then, Abr then God said to Abram, As for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner, those who are not your offspring. Whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant is in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. God also said to Abraham, As for Sarah, your wife, you are to no longer call her Sarah. Her name will be Sarai. Her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she will be the mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Abram fell down. And he laughed and said to himself, Will a son be born, a man to a hundred years old? Will Sarah bear a child at the age of ninety? And Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael might live under your blessing. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear a son, and you shall call him Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. I will surely bless him. I will make him fruitful and will greatly increase his numbers. He will be the father of twelve rulers, and I will make him into a great nation. But my covenant... I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah will bear to you by this time next year. 
And when he had finished speaking with Abraham, God went up from him. And on that very day, Abram took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money every male in his household and circumcised them as God told him. And Abram was 99 years old when he was circumcised and his son Ishmael was 13. Abram and his son Ishmael were both circumcised on the same day. And every male in Abram's household, including those born in his household or bought from a foreigner, was circumcised with him. Well, amen. And we thank God for his word to us. Nigel. Well, if you have a Bible handy, let's turn together to Genesis 17, that chapter that we read earlier. As uh, John indicated as he was praying, we are well in truly in the middle of marriage season here in Hill Street at the moment. We had one wedding this week and three rehearsals, would you believe? It was tricky to keep all the names uh, in my head, and uh, hopefully we marry the right people to the right people uh, as we go forward. Um, but uh, an absolute uh, delight, just lovely to see uh, believing couples begin the journey of marriage together. It's also lovely because it is one of the, the few places now within society where we use what is a very important word within the Bible, and it is that word covenant. We talk about the marriage covenant, the, the binding agreement of marriage as vows are taken, as rings are exchanged as two lives are, are, are bound together. And it's one of the few places that we use that word in society today. But as we've been working our way through Genesis, covenant is a word that begins to appear with increasing frequency. Specifically, God makes covenants. So, what's a covenant? Well, here's a definition. It is an agreement between God and humankind where God promises blessings if the conditions are kept and threatens curses if the conditions are broken. I'll read that again. It's an agreement between God and humankind where God promises blessings if the conditions are kept and threaten curses if the conditions are broken. Now, that's a definition from Jonty Rhodes, his excellent little book on covenant called Reading the Lost Ark. I was speaking to Jonty this week. He sends his greetings. I didn't tell him I'd be pinching some of his stuff today, but, but his book is really, really good if you want to read a little bit more about covenant. Now, it's with Abraham. There are covenants with, with Adam. There's a covenant with Noah. But, but it is particularly with Abraham that we really start to see covenant more clearly. And God reveals His covenant to Abraham in, in stages. And each time He does so, we understand something more of how God is working with Abraham and actually how He's working with us too. Because one of the things we've got to know is that as we read these Old Testament stories, these ancient stories, Abraham's God is our God. And what I hope we'll see today is that we'll see a little bit more of how God works with us. And that will help us. And especially it will help us with the question of what is it that God does for us and what are we to do? Because sometimes we get those sort of things mixed up. Sometimes if we don't really know what God has done for us, if, if we think, for example, that we've got lots to do to, to make God love us, for example, as lots of people think, then we think that everything depends on us. And I don't know about you, but if I start to think like that, it's not long before I'm in despair, 
because I know that if things depend on me, it'll all come crashing down. But then sometimes we go wrong the other way, and we think that God doesn't expect much from us, and then we get complacent, and we start to sort of uh, cruise. And it's really important, therefore, that we have a good grasp of what God does and what we do. We're going to see that uh, today. Now, the last time we looked at God making a promise to Abraham was in Genesis 15, a couple of uh, weeks ago and a couple of chapters ago, actually. And uh, part of what he told him there would that he would be the father of many. That was a remarkable promise because, as we were saying to the boys and girls, uh, Abraham and Sarah were both old and they were childless. But Abraham, there we find, believed God. Now, that doesn't mean that there weren't times when his faith wavered and he tried to take things into his own hands. And that happened in chapter 16, chapter we've not read. But let me say just a word about it. Abraham, at Sarah's instigation, fathers a child through her servant Hagar. And really, this is Abraham trusting in himself rather than God. He says, here's a way for me to get what I want rather than trusting God to provide it. And this child, Ishmael, is born, but he's not the child of promise. And this chapter is sort of linked to that chapter. You notice that it ends in chapter 16 by saying that Abraham was 86 years old when Ishmael was born. And then chapter 17 begins when Abraham was 99 years old. So we, we, we think sometimes of Abraham's life just being a, a sort of a life that was full of encounters with God. And of course, there were many wonderful ones, but what we forget is that there were also long periods when there were no words from the Lord and no miraculous visitation. It was just Abraham walking with the Lord day by day. And this is, is one of those uh, miraculous interventions. For 13 years, Abraham had watched Sarah grow older and his own body age and decline. It says in Romans 4, that he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Some of us feel like that long before 99, don't we? But now when all seems lost, and when there seems to be absolutely no possible solution, God speaks to him and reaffirms his promises to him. And that brings us to our first point, and that is that God works. So, what is, where does all of this... A, a, a balance, as it were, come between what God expects, what we expect, and, and so on. Well, the first thing we need to know is that God is the God who works. Lots of this chapter revolves around names. You see that Abraham gets a new name, Sarah gets a new name, Isaac's name is revealed before his birth. But what we might not spot so easily is actually that God gets a new name, because God comes to Abraham, and He speaks to him, and as He does so, He gives Abraham a new name to think of him by. And it's really a new way of, of thinking about, about God. So, God's names, you see, reveal something of his character. So, look at verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, Abram's, uh, the, the God Almighty is the NIV's way of translating the Hebrew name El Shaddai. You might Remember the old chorus, El Shaddai, El Shaddai, El, El Yonah, Aladai, or something like that. And, and, and it's a pretty good translation. Uh, it's, it's the first time God has ever used this name of Himself. And the translation implies it's to do with God's power and strength. 
God is almighty. He's all-powerful. As one writer has said, it describes the God who makes things happen by means of His majesty and His power and His might. And you can see why God chose to reveal Himself to Abraham using this new name. Abraham is pretty despondent. He's been hanging on to the, the bare Word of God now for 23 years. He can see no human way ahead in what he is facing. There's no human possibility of anything working out. It's going to take a miracle. And God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, do you know who I am? I'm God Almighty. It's as if he's saying to him, let me give you a name to think of me by Abraham, which will help you remember what I'm like. I'm the one who is able. I'm the one who can do anything. And you doubt that just because some of my promises to you of descendants and inheriting this land and depending on a son and so on, that that all seems impossible. But, Abraham, I'm God Almighty. There's nothing too hard for me. There's no time that I face an issue in which I've got to give up in. There's no tight spots for me. There's no dead ends in my purposes. There's no mistakes. There's no hurdles that can't be crossed because I am God Almighty. So trust me when I say there'll be a son. Trust me when I say there'll be a mighty nation. Trust me when I say you'll inherit this land. Don't we need to be reminded from time to time who our God is? He is God Almighty, especially as we seek to, to live for Him. We need to be reminded that nothing lies outside of His power. He is able. And that's especially whenever things are hard. Do you know, you might know the, the, the story of Job, the, the Old Testament character whose, whose life just plunges into terrible difficulty and suffering with no real explanation at the beginning. And this name for God, El Shaddai, is used 31 times in the book of Job. God uses it of himself to Job. It's as if he's saying, now listen, Job, you don't understand all of this, but I am God Almighty. You think that that your life has gone this way because I've lost control or, or I've taken my eye off the ball, but I'm God Almighty. I'm still working out my purposes of grace in your situation, desperate though it may seem to you. So God works, you see. He's the great and sovereign God. He's the one who initiates things. All good things start with Him. He's the one who saves us. And as we saw back in chapter 15, He's the one who underwrites the covenant. It all depends upon Him, not on our efforts. And so, if you you find yourself maybe today at a bit of a crossroads, and you're thinking, do you know what? It doesn't seem as if going with God is is paying off for me here. It looks as if it's, it's a real struggle. Well, just keep going with Him because He is God Almighty. It depends on Him and not on our efforts. And as you see here, God reaffirms the, the covenant, and you see how often He says, I will, in verses 48. Let's just note that as we read it, 48 of chapter 17. 
As for me, God says, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you, the whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. It's not as if God is, is saying, well, here's what we're going to have a go at. We'll see how it works out. No, God works. And if you're here and you're a little bit fearful, take rest in that. Take heart in that. Because God is the God who works. But that's not all. The second thing we've got to see is that we are those who are to obey. We are to those who are to obey. Look at verse 9. This is another thread that runs through this chapter so very, very clearly. It's really what our boys and girls are looking at next door. Look at verse 9. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, so remember God has said, I'm the God who's working. I'm going to do all this stuff. And then he says, as for you, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. So there's a response of obedience demand it from Abraham, and that is that he obey God. The particular uh, obedience demanded here was following through in the rite of circumcision. It's not a, something that we're going to look at particularly closely here today, but just let's note that with a covenant, there's often a covenant sign. Whenever we do a marriage covenant, rings are given and exchanged in order to, to signify the, the, the union, the, to, to be a sign of the covenant. And, and here, this covenant sign is applied to both Abraham and his children. And in the New Testament, we find that that covenant sign changes from the uh, sign of blood circumcision to a bloodless sign after Christ has died. And it's the sign of baptism applied to both believers and their children, you see. Now, that's a whole other direction, a direction that John might go in in the academy uh, on Tuesday night. If you want to hear more about that, uh, talk to John. Now, the other place where, where we see this is in what God says in, in verse 1, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. So, you see God saying, I'm going to do all these things, Abraham. That's what I'm going to do. But what are you to do? You're to walk before me and be blameless. You're to keep my covenant. Walking before the Lord has the idea of doing everything in His sight. It's being conscious that our activities and even our thoughts are being scrutinized by the Lord. Sometimes we've got that sort of helpful way, don't we, of determining whether something is right or wrong. And that is if we were to be engaged in that activity and we turned around and we saw the Lord Jesus standing there, would we be embarrassed? It's just a simple question, isn't it? And yet, that's what walking before the Lord means, living so that we need never be ashamed of His gaze, conscious that we are always before His face. And if we live like that, then we'll be, we'll be blameless. Not perfect, but, but blameless. So, so once again, our, our part is this obedient, responsive life. God takes the initiative, but He looks to us to respond 
in obedience. And this is the way it works, isn't it? As Christians, God calls us to Himself. He seeks us before we seek Him. Just as with the covenant, Abraham, and just as with the covenant with Abraham, God starts the whole thing off. It's not as if Abraham comes looking for God. God comes looking for Abraham. But Abraham does not hear these sorts of words from God. Now, Abraham, I have saved you. Off you go and do anything you like. Not at all. I have saved you. Now you live for me. Obey me. And the fact that we have, that we obey God, it just shows us that, that, that God has been at work in our lives. He's drawn us to Him in the first place. So we've got to get this into our heads, this, this what God does and what we do bit. This is how we know that we're loving God. You see, what He seeks from us is not just some feeling or experience to maintain. He doesn't get up. He doesn't say to Abraham, now, you, Abraham, you get up every morning and, and ask yourself the question, do I feel close to God today? Do I sense that He is with me? Do I feel that I love Him? Well, if yes, then all must be well. That's, that's not what God says to us, not at all. Abraham's feelings were no measure of where he was with God at all. God sought Abraham to obey him, whether he felt like it or not. The measure of where we are with God is, is not how we feel about Him, but whether or not we're obeying Him. Jesus said, really the same, didn't He? <clears throat> John 14, 23, Jesus replied, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teaching. My Father will love him and will come to him <clears throat> and make our home with him. John said, 1 John 5, this is love for God, to obey His commands, and His commands are not burdensome. You see, so the measure of where we are with God is not how we feel. We're such a feeling-driven world, but in obeying what God says. Abraham does that here as, as God outlines his responsibilities as far as circumcision are concerned. You look ahead to verse 23. On that very day, Abraham took his son Ishmael and all those born in his household or bought with his money, every male in his household, and circumcised them as God told them. And this is how we know that, that Abraham loves the Lord. He obeyed. He doesn't say, well, I'll, I'll do that next week or I'll do it when I get round to it or I'll make preparations for it. As soon as God revealed that this is what he was to do, he did it. So as we are thinking about this, we've got to realize that, that this is the test of, of where we are. God initiates this work in our lives, but we're to respond in obedience. So how, how are we doing? How do we rank as far as the effectiveness of our obedience is concerned? You see, it's not, it's not really in the impact that we have, in the lives that we touch, in the, the people that we witness to. All of those things are really important, the books that we read, the meetings that we come to. But the, the units of measurement are our obedience. Are we obeying the Lord? As we sit here and we talk about this, are you conscious that there are chunks of your life and you've said to God, Stay out of this. I used to use the illustration sometimes where we did Christianity Explored of inviting God into a house. And you know the way whenever you're receiving visitors 
and you run around and there's stuff sitting everywhere and, and, and you're, you're in a rush and, and you gather it all up and you put it into the room that you hope the visitors will not be in, you know? And you just stuff it in and you maybe get two or three people to lean against the door and then you put it in there and, 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 and then you find the visitor says, you know, I've never been in your house before. Can, can you show me around? You know, God sort of says something like that, comes into your house, the house of your life, and He says, do you know what? I, I'm, I'm going to go everywhere here. There are going to be no cupboards under the stairs. There are no rooms that are not fit for me to be in because, because I'm going to go everywhere, and I'm going to redecorate everywhere. Are, are there areas of your life where you're going, Lord, you're really welcome, but I don't want you to go in there my relationships, my money, my time, my viewing. I don't want you to go in there because, well, that's not for you. How do we measure where we are with the Lord? It's our obedience, isn't it? We obey. Last thing, just in case we get the wrong idea, last thing, we're not on our own here, is, is that God enables, God enables. This is the passage where Abraham uh, receives his name. He, his, his name changes from Abraham to Abraham. We've not really focused on that. We've just tended to call him Abraham all the way through. But, but this is where it changes. And on the one hand, this was a, a further act of faith on Abraham's part. You see, Abram means something like exalted father, and that name must have been a, a little bit ironic for him and maybe a little bit of a, a problem in, in his culture as he was uh, welcoming people that he didn't know. You can imagine in the Middle Eastern culture where people came through the camp and so on, and, and they, they sat down and they, they, hospitality was given as was the way, and, and the introductions were made, and the visitor would have said, oh, you're called exalted father. So, so how wonderful. Abraham was in a large camp with lots of people. Tell me, how many of these people are your children? And for years, Abraham would have looked at the ground and said, well, actually, I don't have any children. Well, now at least he could say he'd one son, he'd, he'd Ishmael, but then God changes his name, and you can imagine Abraham announcing it to the community. Folks, uh, you need to change how you refer to me. I'd be giving a new name, which is to be used from now on. It's Abraham. What does that mean? Father of a multitude. There's only Ishmael. But you see the faith. He's the father of one son. It wasn't even the promised son. But now at 99, he's to be called the father of a multitude. And every day that people addressed him, he would be reminded of God's promise. But, the, but there's something else here. In, in English, the difference between Abraham and Abram is just two letters, the H-A. But in Hebrew, it's even less than that. It's a breathing. Hebrews uses breathing as a letter to say that you're you're breathing out. And it's a letter that's often associated with God and with the Spirit of God, with the breathing out of God, the Holy Spirit. And you see what's happening. God has put that letter in His name to refer to the Spirit right in the middle of His name. You see what God is saying, albeit very subtly. He's saying, Abraham, I'm going to be your strength here. You're to walk in obedience before me, but you're not doing this on your own. This will be your experience 
Abraham, I, I, I will be with you. I'm demanding obedience from you. But even as I do that, I'm providing you with my spirit so that you may do this. It's what God does, isn't it? He, he calls us to live for Him, to work for Him, and to be for Him. And He gives us resources by His Spirit to do it. And if you think that, that God is, is asking you to live for Him in some area that is daunting or challenging, you be assured that God equips those that He calls. Some of you have told me recently of times when in fear and trepidation you've gone into situations that you really believe God was leading you into, uh, situations of obedience. And, and what did you find? That God had equipped you marvelously, that, that He was way ahead of you. God initiates. We are to respond. We're to respond in obedience and be encouraged as we do that because even then God will equip us to live for Him. Many years later, Peter writes in his first letter, speaking of God, he says, His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything we need for life and godliness. Are you facing somewhere where you say, I just don't think there's a way for me to be godly in this situation? And God says, I've given you everything you need. I, I'll, I'll help you stand for me there. We're going to go from here holding on to that, everything we need for life and godliness, everything we need to go to a home and be a witness where there are family members who are maybe antagonistic to the gospel, everything we need to go into a workplace where there are all sorts of temptations to keep your head down and to compromise, everything we need to go to school or to college and stand for Jesus in what is increasingly a tough setting, everything we need to live and to serve the Lord in whatever way He calls us to, everything we need for life and godliness. So here's the pattern. What do we do? What does God do? God works. God initiates everything. If we're Christians today, it is by His grace and mercy. But He doesn't say to us, I've saved you, now do what you want. No, He says, I've saved you now walk before me, but I'll help you, and I'll enable you. Well, let's pray that we might know God's enabling as we seek to do that. Let's pray together.